listeners, thank you for tuning in to Human Rights Survival Guide, a weekly podcast exploring how human rights can survive and thrive in the 21st century. Our guests are experts, human rights defenders, journalists, and activists willing to share their ideas and practical tips on how you can use human rights to empower, to protect, and to bring perpetrators to justice. Our topic today is the rights of persons kept in detention during COVID-19. We're joined today by Natalia Taubina, Director of the Human Rights NGO Public Verdict Foundation, and Moshe Gekmalan, Senior Human Rights Advisor at OMCT, World Organization Against Torture. Thank you for coming and joining us. Uh, welcome to our guests. So, first question is introductory question to our guests. Could you please tell us a little bit about what's going on in the prisons in those countries where you work? Natasha, for example, you are based in Russia. Russia is a big country with uh, many prisoners, and I imagine situation is quite tough there. So, what do you know about this, and what you can tell us? Thank you, Simon. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the situation is uh, quite difficult. Uh, and uh, first of all, because uh, we do not know much information what's actually going on in uh, Russian prisons, uh, since our penitentiary system uh, does not publish uh, any official statistics. And uh, all our requests uh, we are sending uh, to the authorities, uh, both on regional and federal levels, are returned to us with replies that everything is okay, we are controlling the situation, all uh, medical uh, care needed for the detainees and for the prisoners uh, are receiving by them, and we do have uh, all needed medicaments and uh, medical equipment, but nothing concrete is uh, in the answers. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we're receiving many requests from the prisoners and from their relatives uh, saying that the uh, situation in um, particular prisons in different regions are uh, getting worse, people are getting sick not actually sick with COVID, but uh, flu, and uh, they are very much afraid that this is not a flu but COVID, uh, they are not receiving uh, proper information from the authorities. So the situation is quite difficult. So how much did the situation change in terms of civil society organizations being able to access places of detention and to monitor what's going on there? Basically, how did public oversight work in Russia before the pandemic and what has changed? Uh, I mean, in our normal life, uh, we have uh, public observation commissions working in each region of Russia, and there are a lot of difficulties to what extent these commissions are independent, to what extent uh, they have uh, uh, human rights experience, uh, but at least uh, in each region we have such commission which can monitor and do monitor the situation in uh, penitentiary system. Uh, regarding the current situation, uh, uh, there is no official prohibition uh, for these uh, public observation commissions and their members 
Gaza to visit penitentiary system, but in reality, we uh, simply cannot enter uh, the penitentiary institutions and to see what conditions are there. Speaking more general about civil society organizations, uh, even before we've been quite uh, restricted in the possibilities uh, to get access to the inside the penitentiary institutions uh, because of this law and uh, that only public observation commissions uh, allowed uh, to visit institutions. Uh, now it's uh, even worse because uh, even these uh, observation commissions uh, facing uh, a lot of difficulties and uh, simply denial to get access. We will get back to those important questions in a minute, but let's ask also Mushek, how different is the situation in other countries which you cover from what Natasha has just described about Russia? Well, hello everyone. Um, it's both different and it's also the same in a way that uh, the region that I cover, the region of the former Soviet Union and also including Turkey and some Eastern European countries, they have very different tools and very different approaches, but mostly the motivation behind all these different approaches is also either to make use of the current situation uh, or try to make a visibility that they are containing the issue and uh, just want to follow one of the ideas that Natalia said even before of COVID-19, the situation with penitentiary was dire, as we know. That was the most neglected part of the society. That was the most neglected in terms of institutional, healthcare, nutrition, all aspects, you name it. That was the most neglected population behind the bars. And of course, when the pandemic hit, that also naturally was the less protected part of the society. That's why in statistically, basically, we have now more than 600 prisoners that have passed away globally because of COVID-19. And in 43 countries, there are 30,000 infections recorded already inside penitentiary. And these numbers are growing. This is from like last week. Uh, but the global question is also what we have done so far during the last 20 years for improving penitentiary. And the answer is not positive because only in the last 20 years, for example, we had more than 50% of growth in female prison population. 50%. Only in 20 years. This is a huge and very uh, shocking number, but that's the case. As for the countries, for example, uh, several European countries and countries that are member of Council of Europe uh, have declared their derogations from European Convention of Human Rights and uh, asking for suspension of certain provisions on their territory while they are fighting COVID. Uh, and uh, under those derogations, access to prisons was limited officially, not just. Uh, like in case of Russia, where there is no access, but it's no, not said or there is no government announcement on that, for example. In case of Turkey, they decided to go in a different way and adopt a law on early conditional release of uh, prisoners, uh, which uh, related to around 100,000 prisoners. The total number in Turkey is around 300,000, 286,000 prisoners, and 100,000 of them was, was released in mid-April because this law was adopted. But there also... Uh, the Turkish government decided not to include uh, in this uh, provision all those political opponents, journalists or human rights defenders who were imprisoned. Uh, in case of Armenia, for example, no kind of 
release policy is discussed because the WHO recommendation and the adopted standard is that uh, all the prisoners above 65 should be released if possible. And as you may know, there is an ongoing trial of the one of the former presidents of Republic of Armenia and he's in preliminary detention. And if any such kind of law according to the best practices is adopted, he will be immediately freed. And that also is a demotivator for the government to follow this path. And for that purpose, a lot of people are locked in and there is no solution to get them out or to separate the vulnerable groups or to create different conditions or to use alternatives. So only like two examples from the region, you see how different they are, how opposite they are, but uh, everywhere you see the existence and of the political agenda. Uh, taking into account that we're facing the problem of prison overcrowding for a number of years, and considering that it is much harder to contain any infectious disease in prisons, which are overcrowded, probably decreasing the prison population would be the best strategy for countries and for prison administrations to take situation under their control. But uh, at the same time, the blanket release of the big numbers of prisoners could lead to increasing criminality, which is obviously bad. So, Mushak, how could governments balance and would governments balance the situation out? What mechanisms do you think they should use for the release of prisoners? The situations may differ uh, because, as you know, Turkey had very severe overcrowding. The total capacity of the prison penitentiary system was uh, below 200,000 and they had already 286,000 in the prison. So this is a very extreme example and I don't know if there was any other strategy other than that kind of going for blanket conditional releases. But uh, the other systems of control should be in place and then also the approach uh, that was recommended by civil society in Turkey but was highly ignored by the government was to look into the cases of violent criminals and to think of like uh, separating them inside the prison ward or allocate special parts of the prison where after the others were released there will be a room and possibility to keep the violent criminals and to address it also in terms of having the conditional release in in certain cases where they have uh, controlled places of dwelling so-called early conditional uh, places where people are put right before the absolute release from the prisoners. Uh, but uh, also in other contexts, uh, in case of uh, Azerbaijan also, in case of Armenia or Ukraine, uh, I think the European uh, Committee on Prevention of Torture has really nailed it, saying the most important points that the early release and conditional release are one of the radical measures, but that means that also the law enforcement should also follow up and then uh, some kind of individual approach also should be in uh, choosing and picking up who should be released and who is not, which also in its term has challenges of being a corrupt process or having risks of being a corrupt process in some cases. But uh, it's like a balanced approach uh, of, uh, and synergy of different approaches that would make it happen. Thanks, Mushek. Natasha, going back to Russia, how much do you know about uh, the conditions for the staff that work for the penitentiary service in Russia? Do you have any information about what they are going through right now? I mean, it's especially hard to go there and to do your duties when you're afraid of being contracted in very tough conditions. So how much do you know about this? 
Again, uh, uh, not a lot of uh, information we are receiving, but uh, at the same time, uh, penitentiary system, when all these restrictions started, uh, uh, announced uh, as many other institutions uh, what kind of restrictions are in place uh, within the penitentiary institutions uh, and among others, uh, uh, some restrictions being uh, about uh, the staff working there regarding the individual protective measures. Uh, also, if uh, in some particular institution uh, situation is getting worse uh, and if there is a suspicion that uh, someone uh, uh, was infected, uh, all staff uh, started to work in so-called I don't know what's the term in English, uh, Kazarm regime. Uh, so they are staying within the penitentiary institution. I mean, not together in one cells, uh, but uh, within the penitentiary institutions uh, for two weeks. It's like uh, one of uh, the preventive measure not to give a spread for infection outside. And, uh, of course, it creates uh, a lot of difficulties uh, for the staff members, for the uh, families, uh, and uh, influence uh, their behavior. And uh, it creates uh, risks uh, for increased violence. Uh, within the penitentiary system because of uh, such difficult conditions uh, people have to work. Another thing which Committee for Prevention of Torture has recommended is to pay special attention to those persons who have healthcare needs and who are kept in detention. But how realistic is it to implement this recommendation in general and especially in the countries which do not have favorable uh, conditions like economic situation, overburdened healthcare systems and limited resources? In other words, how realistic is that sick prisoners will be prioritized in Russia or in other countries in the region? From one hand, uh, our government adopted uh, at least two quite big amount of uh, money to be forwarded to the penitentiary system specifically to deal uh, with the current situation and uh, to buy uh, all needed uh, individual uh, things uh, for the protection like masks uh, and disinfection uh, liquids. But at the same time, uh, I personally uh, not absolutely sure that uh, this money will be properly spent uh, because of all this our previous experience uh, with corruption and uh, as you absolutely right, rightly said uh, that uh, prisoners and uh, their health conditions uh, have not been uh, in the priority for the system before and I think that uh, now the situation I mean, regarding the priority is not changed. Probably these funds uh, will go for the protection of the staff and and more measures uh, be taken uh, to protect the staff and penitentiary system. But regarding the prisoners and taking into account the general situation, very which is very bad uh, regarding the medical care inside the penitentiary institutions, I quite pessimistic about. Mushek, do you have information about other countries in terms of uh, right to access to a lawyer and also right to 
contact with the outside world, including with the family members? What kind of uh, restrictive measures have been put in place and how, how is it affecting the life of prisoners? In certain countries, uh, and, uh, I mean, including uh, the country that we talked, uh, don't want to concentrate also on Turkey, but uh, just to cover, uh, there were restrictive measures on family visits, and uh, but that was replaced by alternatives, like if they had a uh, right to 10 minutes of phone call per week, now it's one hour uh, per week, uh, and before it was supposed to be paid by the prisoner, now these are like free phone calls. We are very much lobbying for uh, having video conferencing facilities installed in uh, some of the prisons, and in some cases some EU funding was also allocated for this. Uh, some donor funding was also taken to have um, to accommodate the rooms for meetings with uh, lawyers. And uh, again, in case of Turkey and also in many other countries in the region, there were no restrictions in meeting between the lawyer and the prisoners, but only it is happening beyond the class kind of partition. That, of course, has its limitations, but that's uh, at least uh, some kind of accommodation of uh, the current situation. On the other hand, the other problem that uh, many of inmates on preliminary detention are facing is the postponement of court hearings about their cases, and so they spend extra time behind the bars. In this case, also several countries, including Ukraine, Turkey, in Armenia, and uh, in uh, Azerbaijan, there are different, uh, very different approaches. In one case, the video conferencing is used uh, in Turkey very extensively for the lawyers, uh, for the judges also. A lot of court hearings are happening uh, through the video links. And uh, despite the requirement of the Turkish criminal code that the inmate should be in physical presence in the court while hearing uh, the judgment, uh, since the derogation from the European Commission of Human Rights is in place, this is kind of uh, replaced by video presence. They are trying to put in place some alternatives, and at least those court hearings that relate to the preliminary detention are taking place. So not to pile up, but then the rest, the, like the appeal processes and the appellate court is, are not kind of functioning in the same manner. Maybe you can also tell us a little more about... Um how national preventive mechanisms have continued to operate under the current circumstances. And Natasha was saying, for example, that there are no formal bans uh, for them to enter prison facilities, but de facto it's close to impossible. How is the situation different in other countries that you work on? I think in case of Russia, it's because the Russian government didn't file any formal derogation from European Convention of Human Rights, and that's why it's also there is no formality. They are just not letting people in, and that's it. But in all other countries, everywhere, any kind of prison visits are suspended 100%. Do you think this increases the risk of ill treatment and torture, taking into account that these mechanisms play? important preventive role 
Yes, I think it plays an important role, uh, even in the worst contexts, so contexts like where we know that it's like uh, more of a symbolic window dressing activity, like in case of Azerbaijan. But in any kind of context, the MPMs play an important role. And even if the torture was widespread or endemic uh, in penitentiary systems, still they had some kind of restrictive roles. But now... It's absolutely out of any eyes, any control, and I think that creates really uh, conditions that uh, are unprecedented in, in a sense for, for flourishing of torture and ill treatment. But I hope uh, most of the NPMs will soon be able to resume their work and uh, continue their important oversight function. And I also hope that this situation will prompt some of the countries to start actively using non-custodial measures and eventually this will lead to significant decrease in prison population overall both pre-trial and post-trial um, yeah anything else to add uh, i want to follow that idea actually of yours simon which is really i think a good kind of ending to all this conversation because on one hand, we see the COVID-19 situation as a greater challenge. But on the other hand, that's also an opportunity to once more highlight the dire situation inside the penitentiary systems around the world and also to make this as a momentum to see if it's possible to bring some change, also to bring some understanding in the minds of people that... Uh, Deprivation of liberty should be only deprivation of liberty. No any other rights should be taken from people and uh, that these people should get all adequate treatment inside penitentiary to go back to the society and not to become recidivists and go back again to the prison. So I think there are like big bouquet of issues that this situation has, has highlighted with COVID-19, uh, how poor the system is prepared to any kind of volatile situations. And uh, I think we need to voice more and speak more about it with the hope and with, the, with demand to the governments to do more, uh, to invest more in penitentiary. I mean, one of the reasons why imprisonment rates are so high, probably it's because they are easy to sell from the political point of view. You know, people feel safe when the politicians say, we will lock up all the offenders and then it will be safe. And they believe in this, although criminal uh, justice science is showing very little correlation between the rate of criminality and number of people who are uh, imprisoned uh, in any specific country. But I hope that this situation will also make us all more humane in the sense that general populations feel how this confinement is affecting us like humans. And yeah, hopefully this will also change the public perceptions. Yeah, I wanted to add one thing, uh, which is not actually about the current situation, but about the future when this uh, difficult time uh, will pass and will return to normal life. I think uh, for the civil society, important task will be to ensure that our authorities will return the situation also, at least to what we had before this pandemic because for example what i see in russia make me quite uh, 
pessimistic about, uh, I mean, adopting more and more new restrictions, and uh, these restrictions are quite comfortable for our authorities, and I'm very much afraid that uh, in the future, then this situation is uh, finished, uh, ended, uh, uh, they uh, would uh, be not willing to yeah to give them up and to, to stop these restrictions uh, and I think for the civil society is a very important task uh, to think and to strategize uh, our actions uh, to ensure that uh, authorities will return the situation uh, to what we had before these restrictions. Mushek, any final thought from your side? I want to end up on a more positive note, but uh, it's difficult in these times to end in positive notes. But at least to kind of um, give an encouragement to all those civil society activists and human rights defenders who work in these conditions to keep on doing the important work, because now it's clear that uh, they are the last bastion, basically, the last hope for many people, because all the state institutions are now working in a different mode. And uh, that's why I think I would very much emphasize uh, the work of human rights defenders. And I think everyone should support defenders. Beyond. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you, Mashak. Human Rights Survival Guide will be back with you really soon. Stay safe and healthy, everyone, and stay tuned for our next episode. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or on your other favorite podcast services.